Hi, Allison Dunn, owner of Deliberate Directions, and I am bringing you another amazing guest for our podcast today. I have John Spence, and not only is he a keynote speaker, he is also an executive coach uh, for businesses around the world. He is um, a creator of a training program for more than 30 Fortune 500 companies. He's taught at MIT the War and the Wharton School of Business. His clients include Apple, AT&T, Bank of America, Coca-Cola, FedEx, GE, it goes on and on and on, which is pretty awesome. Um, John, I love your mission. So uh, according to my research, uh, your mission is to help businesses and people be more successful by making the very complex awesomely simple. So that with correct. that said, he is the author of the bestseller, Awesomely Simple, um, Essential Business Strategies for Turning Ideas into Action. And that's how you have come onto my radar. And this is how we are in front of each other today, because I love your book. So John, thank you, thank thank you, very, you very much, much for being here with us today. It's my honor. Um, I have um, kind of a structure that I'm going to use. So are you ready to get started? Sure, of course. Excellent. Okay. Um, so you started, you have a company, it's uh, John Spence, LLC. When did you start it and why? Well, I've had, I've owned several companies uh, and John Spence LLC is basically the umbrella that goes over all my consulting, training, speaking, executive coaching. Uh, we've had that for, well, I'm in my 28th year doing this, so almost 30 years, which is amazing to me. Uh, and. That, that's one. I've also owned a marketing firm for a while and a few other things. Okay, fantastic. So I always like when talking to people who have launched a business, who was your first client that you got and how did you get them? Do you remember? Oh, this is it's a great story. I um, When I was really trying to get in the consulting business and training, I went to a local college. I'm in Florida and I went to the University of North Florida and I said, I'd really like to be a lecturer and your executive series. About once a month, they would have an executive training day. Mm -hmm. And I went to the head of their training department and said, I will come in and give a free speech at lunch to your staff. And if you like me, I'd like to be one of your instructors. Went away, okay, got in there. On the second day I was there uh, doing teaching, Maryland came and tried to, uh, wanted to hire me for 70 days a year to do nice. their tra all their training global worldwide. So I went from First thing to first client was Merrill Lynch, uh, eventually head of global leadership and development. Okay, wow. 70 days, like out of the gate. Out of the gate. That's awesome. And back then it used to be a per person fee. Uh, so it was $500 a person for mm -hmm. a half day. So how do you charge? So the numbers were pretty big way I back then. Bet you, don't, you don't use that structure anymore for pricing? No, no, we've we've gone now to a a that pricing doesn't exist mostly in corporations. They don't do a per person fee anymore, very rarely, mm -hmm. uh, and we've just gone to a daily rate. So if I show up, whether I whether I work for an hour or the whole day, uh, it's the same fee. Yeah, smart, very smart, and it, it when you, equity of scale, right? The more people that can pack into a room, the more you can impact. The better you feel about it, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so today you're just a runaway success. Um, but when you sh uh, you shared that when you were first uh, started college, um, you slacked off and you were um, on a runaway for me mediocrity. Um, <laughs> and on the, yeah, the fast lane. <laughs> um, what um, what motivated you to turn that around? 
I um when I failed I, fa I failed out of college on the first try. And I failed out of the University of Miami, where my father was one of the top alumni ever to graduate from the college. The year I got kicked out, he was on the board of directors, and part of the law school was named after my dad. So, yeah, it's really hard to get kicked out of a university where there's a building named after your family. Uh, and then here's what turned around, though, is not only did that not go over well with my dad, but when I reapplied, I came to where I live now, Gainesville, Florida, to apply at the University of Florida, and I will never, ever, ever forget this. I was in line, I handed the woman my transcripts from the University of Miami where I failed out. She looked down and went, <laughs> we don't take people like you. And, and then she said, next. And I, I stepped out of the line, walked out, walked down the stairs, sat on the curb and started crying. And I said, I, this is not what I wanna do with my life. I, I'm, I've gotta turn this around. And that was the moment right there when I said, I've been pretty good. I, I did well up until that University of Miami Thing. I said, I've been pretty well up to now, but I'm really headed towards failure. I don't want to do that. So I want to become an expert on success. And that's on reading 100 plus books a year, every year, uh, going to seminars, listening to tapes, getting all the information I could humanly get to help me figure out ways to run a, a more successful business and life. Yeah. I'm, um, I, have, um, I have a bookcase possibly as large as that, but you mentioned some significant numbers about how many books you've read um, on a weekly basis. So do you have an actual book count? Do you have, do you own them all or do you consume them? Uh, it, well, I've got a thousand just, I've got 900 just in this room because this nice. is one of 11 bookcases okay. just in my office. I have a library at my house too. I've read somewhere over 4,000 books. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. And I've also listened to a lot of audio tapes and things like that. I read, okay. I also read, uh, an hour every morning on all the Entrepreneur Inc., Fortune Forbes, yeah. Harvard Business Review strategy, so I keep up with that. But don't forget, it's my job. Right. You know, my job is to, to have access to information then apply it with what I see in the real world and my own experience. Yeah. So, I, A, I love to read. I, I see business as a big game, mm -hmm. and it's a game that's fun to play well and win. Uh, and this is one of the ways that I get the playbook. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you have an absolute favorite go-to book that you that you consume repeatedly? Uh, well, for, as a business book or a regular book? It doesn't matter. It's a book. Okay. Okay. The Cahill Gibran, uh, The Prophet by Cahill Gibran. He's a okay. Sufi poet. A lot of times you hear it uh, in in weddings. They use a lot of his poetry in uh, uh, in the whatever you want to say that when they're when the priest is talking and they're saying yeah. stuff, lots of people use his poetry. It's just very touching. It's really cool. Oh, lovely. I like that. Thank you for sharing. Um, okay. So I'd like to dive into the book that I love so much. So um, in your book, um, uh, Awesomely Simple, you have um, listed six principles of business success. And so I'd like to spend some time touching on each of them. But just for our listeners, I'm going to highlight the six first, and then we'll dive into each principle. Okay. So the well, first is... I'm glad because I don't remember them. <laughs> Aren't you glad I didn't rely on you to tell me the six? Wait a minute, hold on. Ah, good, there's a there copy over here I can, I can try to keep up with you. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right, so to give you a highlight of your six principles, <laughs> here are the six. Thank you. Um, the first is vivid vision. The second is best people. The third is robust communication. The fourth is sense of urgency. The fifth is disciplined execution. And then the last one is extreme customer focus. And I think 
um, there's so much value in each of these. So I'd like to kind of dive into each of them um, individually. So Vivid Vision, you've worked with a lot of companies, right? Yes. Um, what in your experience, some, a company that has a great vision, a great mission, but is not understood by their people, how does that happen? Because it happens a lot. Yeah, um, when you look at a lot of organizations, one of the main stumbling blocks they have, and I use a certain phraseology because it's from an awesome Harvard study, uh, is the lack of a vivid, compelling, and well-communicated vision and strategy for growth. And all those words are important. Vivid, compelling, well-communicated uh, vision vision and strategy. So the, the, the problem is, is that the senior management team talks about the vision and the strategy all the time. CEO, owner of the company lives it day in and day out. It's, it's all that's on their mind. But typically, if you go one or two levels down an organization, they have no idea what it is. And the problem is, is the people at the top are talking about it, thinking about it all the time. They're sick of it. But, and I have CEOs of companies ask me, John, when have I communicated the vision, the values, the strategy enough? And I say, when you get to the point that if you say it one more time, you're going to get nauseous, the lowest level person in your company just heard it for the very first time, mm -hmm. and they need to hear it seven or ten times before they actually understand what it is. So, it's communication is always an issue in every company, period, worldwide, whether they got two people or two hundred thousand. Truly, and the problem is, it's it's not consistent. Different way to say it, but con not consistently talking about the vision, the values, what we're doing, how your work aligns with it. Um, absolutely critical. Yeah. Um, I think it's one of the number one challenges of, that I see is that having an actual clear, like clarity, even from the leader, the, the top leader themselves is exactly what is our vision and then exhausting it continuously. Yeah. Um, what's the best way for someone to audit whether their vision is working? Oh, well that, uh, you, even though you have a, a vivid vision of what the future, there should be metrics that back it up. Mm -hmm. There should be uh, milestones, stepping stones on the way there. Um, the one thing when you do metrics or things like this, it's one of the keys of accountability in an organization is to try to make them binary. Uh, you either did it or we didn't. We reached three million in, in, in revenues. We've got five offices. We've got you know X number of employees. We've served so many millions of customers. But the vision has to be made real through solid KPIs, key performance indicators, whatever you want to call it that are measurable and clear, again, so everyone can tie their work back into it. My job does this, which allows us to happen, that, that allowed us to reach that milestone. I'm proud of that work. Mm -hmm. um, what KPIs do you use for your business's vision? I'm just curious. Uh, for me, it, it's a really interesting one, mm -hmm. and it's gonna sound egotistical, but it's not. It's to be consistently ranked among the top 100 business thought leaders in the world. Uh, and two years ago, I was number eight Congratulations. Uh, in, in one area. So, and the reason is it because it's I could care less about the award, mm -hmm. but that allows me to reach more people. If I'm consistently ranked up there, then I'm going to be the one that people call, ask for help, ask ask for advice, things like that. So it's a credibility and exposure KPI, but that's the best way to measure it because I wouldn't get that award if I wasn't doing cutting edge work and helping a lot of people. For sure. So it's it's we look at that as the main KPI. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I love that. That's measure. that is a metric you can measure, right? And it and uh, I either make the upon. list or I don't. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Should you not? Oh my goodness. Uh, I will. Well, we'll have to figure out why I didn't make it. What did I not? Do? Why did I not touch? 
that made me fall off that list. But I, I'm high enough up right now that I have to screw up pretty bad to drop all the way off. That's awesome. Very cool. All right, so um, that is uh, principle number one. So I'm gonna actually um, dive into principle, ask us to dive into principle number two, which is um, best people. And I love your equation, which is talent times culture equals profits. And yeah. um, not only is that powerful, but it is absolutely true in every case. Yeah. Um, what are the best ways to motivate talented people who might not be? Okay, the, the the number one way to motivate talented people, or two, there's two. One is, is if you've got a close relationship with them, is to understand what motivates them in their own lives, mm -hmm. what's important to them, mm -hmm. and then find a way to tie their job together with, with something that's extremely important to them personally. But here's the big one we're seeing a lot, especially with all the millennials moving into the workforce. And I was, I was at NASA last week uh, with their top 50 directors. And we were all saying, you know, I, when I think of millennials, I think of like teenagers doing this. Uh, millennials, the oldest ones are 37 now. And I, I looked at NASA and said, by 2025, 70% of the people here are gonna be millennials. Uh, and for them, a major driver is purpose. I wanna know that what I do makes a difference in the world, that uh, we are uplifting a noble purpose and I feel good about being part of something really important that makes a difference in people's lives and in the world. So purpose is a huge motivator. Mm -hmm. And some companies, that's easy. I mean, if I work at, let's just say, Medtronics that makes pacemakers, it's pretty easy to tie my work together with keeping people alive. It's a little bit harder if you make you know, ball bearings or, or, or something else. So if the company doesn't do things that are super purposeful, maybe they do it in their community. So our company is not that, you know, we make envelopes, whatever. But we also raise more money for the breast cancer or walk than anybody else. Or we're very, very tied into the Ronald McDonald House or the Children's Hospital or whatever it is. So my job might be menial, but I, what our company does is meaningful and I get to play a role in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Um, we have obviously a war on talent going on right now with the super low unemployment rate that we have. Um, what um, what things would you recommend um, your business clients to do that um, allow them to attract the very best talent they can afford? I, I absolutely think this is a great question. Uh, I did a research project on this a couple of years ago. It's still continuing, but I reached out to more than 10,000 high potential employees at companies around the world, from small companies up again to Apple and IBM and Microsoft and I went to their very best employees. These are what I call basically voluntary employees. Mm -hmm. They're so good at what they do that they come back to work, not because they have to be, because they want to. Because if they didn't like where they were working, they'd quit and they'd have a job at the competition the next day. So they are that talent that everybody wants. So I asked them then, why do you work where you work? And they, they six key things, and here they are. Number one was fair pay, and as you said, reasonable. Mm -hmm. As long as you're 10% above or below what they would make to do the same job someplace else, then pay goes off the table. If you get parity on pay, pay is no longer a major motivator. The next one was meaningful, challenging work. What you just said, purpose, something that motivates me to make a difference, some meaningful, challenging work. Next one was cool colleagues. Uh, a players only want to play with other A players. So Agreed. if I'm really good, I, I want to be around other people that challenge me and lift me up. The, the opposite is, is if, if you take someone who's talented and put them on a team with mediocre people, one of two things happens. Either they drop their performance or they get frustrated and leave. Mm -hmm. So we've got uh, 
reasonable pay, fair pay, mm -hmm. challenging work, cool colleagues. The next one is winning culture. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as we said, talent and culture. Culture is, to me, when you put culture and talent together, the two things that can either make or break a company. If you want to see really make a big impact on a company, improve their culture. Want to drive a company into bankruptcy, dysfunctional culture. It's pretty straightforward. Right. So winning culture. And then the last two I think are really cool. Number five is personal and professional growth. Mm -hmm. Personal growth. My company's investing in me. I get sent seminars, training, I get a coach. But I know that I'm smarter at the end of the month than I was at the beginning. And my company is, is investing in me to get better. Professional growth says I can look up and see a place for myself in this company five to seven years from today. And if, if, if you hire somebody who's smart, talented, and they're not growing, they're not learning anything new, and they look up and go, I don't really see a career path for me here, they're gone immediately. Mm -hmm. Then the last one, which is actually the first one, single most important thing by far was, I work for a leader I trust, respect, and admire. 88% yeah. of people that quit their job, don't quit the job, don't quit the hours, don't quit the pay, don't <clears> quit the <throat> workload, what do they quit? Their idiot boss. Right. What we also just learned is the single biggest factor that attracts and keeps top talent is great leadership. People uh, in the workforce in general want meaningful work, right? Meaningful work on a daily basis is important, but often there's a lot of jobs here, specifically in the United States, that are very manufacturer-driven, production-driven, um, that are rote, like they're um, the same thing every day. How, um, how have you seen organizations bring meaning into the work and do it well. Okay. I, I've got a great story of this one that, that fits cool. exactly what you said. Okay. Um, I've got a friend who is the CEO of a company that makes gearboxes. This, mm -hmm. this is sexy, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they make them for you know air conditioners and big cooling units and nuclear submarines and all okay. this other stuff. And it can be hard putting, I mean, basically the ball bearings and these tiny things and microns and giant uh, gears and all this stuff and they had bought a company that made gearboxes for helicopters just one little part of the gearbox and the workforce was not very motivated they went this every day they did the same stuff same machine same thing gearbox boom out the door so right after they brought in one of their top customers which was the United Military uh, the um, army and they brought in a general who was there basically bought the most stuff and everybody's in a hangar and the general walks up to the podium and they're all thinking like, oh, thanks for building these gearbox server. He leans over the thing and he looks at the pad, he goes, you make gearboxes for Black Hawk helicopters. Both my sons fly Black Hawks in Iraq. Don't kill my boys. Aww. And then he walked away. And yeah, I still get goosebumps. You totally and just gave me goosebumps and maybe even tears. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everybody went from building, building gearboxes to keeping American soldiers alive and the sons of my neighbors that are in those helicopters it fails everybody dies we we return young people back to America safe and sound by building great gearboxes yeah. that's how you take something that's not particularly exciting and turn it into something that's very meaningful and uh, it's really hard for some companies but typically you can find a way to put them together well that would I wish that I had that kind of meaning, like, you know, where it really makes you, like it made me tear up, right? Um, so yeah. that's a good challenge for every company to figure out like where they're making a difference. Um, so meaning, that's one side of it, but then um, let's talk about the opposite or the bad side of that, is that um, some cultures um, are being destroyed by 
poor behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what is the number one behavior that you see that crushes cultures and ruins even good talent? Uh, well, you, the single biggest thing that either supports or, or crushes culture is the senior management team, period. Mm -hmm. As goes the senior management team, so goes the entire company. Yeah. So you want to drive, have a stated set of values and then have a group of leaders that violate them on a daily basis. This, my friend, is what crushes culture. And that's yeah. probably the problem I see the most is they say this is what we do and what we believe in. And, you know, we um, we respect our employees, but you got a boss over here yelling at somebody. This work in the real world. So that's the single biggest thing is uh, a leadership team that isn't a living example of the values and the vision of the organization. Yeah. So. I completely agree, and you answered how to fix it, which is to be congruent with what you say the values are and demonstrate those behaviors to um, amplify them. So, uh, cool. All right, can we dive into principle number three, um, which is communication? Um, and I'd say the number one challenging crux of every organization. Um, what's the most common thing that employees fail to communicate to their managers? Questions. Question. So asking the question, like, yeah. oh, like, I don't know if that's an okay question. Yeah. I don't understand that. Yeah. I don't, could you clarify that for me? It's a two-sided two. Not giving clear expectations and direction, mm -hmm. and then not asking for clarification when you don't understand something that's going on. You just hope you'll figure it out. Well, hope is not a good strategy. So it's that it's two sides of that. It's not giving clear direction and then not asking for clarification because that what that does is things get all messed up. Now we got more time, more energy, more effort, going back to fix it. Whereas if we take in two extra minutes or three extra minutes to communicate clearly, all of that other stuff would have been avoided. Mm -hmm. What is the most common thing managers fail to communicate to their employees? And so is it clarifying? There's two parts to that one. Okay. It, it is setting clear expectations. Mm -hmm. The other thing is failing to tell them when they don't think they're doing a good job. Yeah, feedback. And they don't say anything, and they don't say anything, and they don't say anything. They don't, be, you know, be mean or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the, the employee ends up at a place that they're about to lose their job, but nobody said anything to them. Uh, right. I, I, I've got a Jack Walsh quote I love: "I never fired anybody who was surprised." And, <laughs> and that's I the see way it so should be. So many managers mm -hmm. angry, pissed off, complaining. And I'm mad if I she, if she doesn't get, you know, and, and I'm going to get rid of. And they go, nobody said anything to me. I didn't know anything was wrong. That's really unfair to the employees right. too. Yeah, I, I agree. In your book, you recommend that managers um, should take interpersonal communication skills training. So um, what should a company look for in a training for that? I think the number one class on that, in my opinion, is conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Is how to handle difficult, awkward, challenging, uncomfortable situations. And it isn't just, you know, yelling and screaming conflict. It's Part of what I just said, it's a difficult conversation mm -hmm. to tell someone they're not performing at the level you expected them to. Right. So the, the one thing that I see is because people are really good at handling those awkward situations, having difficult conversations, another word I would use there is radical candor. Mm -hmm. um, because they don't know how to do that, they avoid all those issues, which only makes them get much, you know, for most of it's a skill we learn way later. Like just this week, I read a book called I Can Hear You about validating other people's 
um, feelings. Mm. And I, I've been teaching this stuff for 30 years. And I've been saying, I have, I've never seen this before. I, I do this terribly. I'm oh. ask my wife. I am horrible at this. <laughs> and I looked at it and went, I someone should have taught this to me 20 years ago. I would have, I would have avoided a lot of pain in my life. So that's the kind of stuff I think. And the neat thing about that is it helps an office and home. Um, okay, let's talk about uh, the next principle, which is um, sense of urgency. Um, you wrote in the book, um, if speed equals success, then bureaucra bureaucracy equals failure. So um, meetings, reports, procedures, all those things that um, we teach um, our business owners to create, sometimes creates that bureaucracy, right? Yes, they do. Um, so how do you maintain quality standards without slowing you down? Oftentimes steps are added, more steps are added, a year later another step's added, one, one more thing. And it can blow up into something you didn't realize is now 10 times more work than it used to be three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. So constantly being vigilant about, mm -hmm. do we have the most effective, efficient way to do this? Do we have, um, one of the ways I like to use this is Starbucks. Starbucks is a very, very clear process for making a mocha chocolate or whatever those things are called. <laughs> it, it is gonna, you can go to any Starbucks in the world, it's exactly the same. However, they then tell the baristas, bring your own personality to it, add it, innovate, whatever you want to do. Just make sure that when the coffee hits the table, it's exactly what the person ordered. So I like the idea of here's the rules, the, the guardrails mm -hmm. need to do. Other than that, use your own best judgment at all times. You're a smart person. That's why I hired you. So let's, let's make it happen faster. So urgency is in the red tape and things like that. Urgency is also in the fact that deadlines pass mm -hmm. in many companies and nobody does anything about it. I, I've got a CEO coaching now that said, uh, my board book is due next week. All the files that were supposed to be for the board of directors book were supposed to be in two weeks ago. I still don't have stuff from my CFO. I said, well, that, that's mm -hmm. unacceptable. Mm -hmm. They just didn't feel like it was that important. I go, well, that's not the answer one would want to hear, is it? No, <laughs> not at all. We do get what we allow. Is that not true? That is exactly true. You, you train people how to treat you. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, in um, you offer some great advice in your book about the four levels of decisions, um, and I'm going to put you right on the spot. Can you quickly recap uh, what those are for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I learned this was when I was a young CEO. I thought it was so cool that everybody was coming to me for decisions. I and I got then I looked up one day and I saw everybody standing in the hallway waiting for me to make their decisions. <laughs> so I got my whole team together and I said, from now on, there's four levels of decision making in our organization. Level one. Your decision, you own the outcome. That's what I hired you for. This is your area of expertise. Uh, this is your part of the organization. You make the decision, you make it immediately, you own the outcome, level one. Level two, go get some advice. Uh, it doesn't have to be from me, the CEO. You might want to go talk to the direct person in the organization, ask for advice, feedback, input information. Then you make the decision and you own the outcome. But make sure you talk to only, because people would bring me something that I'd have to go, you go here, you go there, boom. And if you do that level two a couple of times, it should become a level one because you understand the answer already. Right. Level three is a team decision. We're going to get together and as with the appropriate people in the company, uh, and we're going to make a decision as a team. And me as the CEO, I will go along with you even if I don't agree. I mean, if it's not mission critical, you all say you want to go one direction. I go, I think we ought to go the other way. But what I say is, I trust you. You're my team, and if you want to go that way, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with you, mm -hmm. and I own the outcome, though. 
if it if it's great, you get all the credit. If it bombs, my fault. Yeah. So I take all of the negative consequences. And a level four decision is I'm making this decision. It's my call. I'm the owner, leader, boss. And when I do a level four, I need you to back me and say, we're behind you. And then, of course, I own the outcome. Very important idea here. It's the level three decisions you make over and over again where you allow your team to overrule you and do what they want to do. And it turns out great that when you ask them to trust you and say, just trust me, I'm making this decision, they go, you've always trusted us, we'll trust you. Yeah, that's awesome. Those are good, those are, that's a good clarification on the four levels. Um, what is the fastest way to create a culture of urgency? A culture of urgency mm-hmm. is, to, is to make and keep dates so that, that when we set put someone on a calendar, something due on a certain day, it's actually due on that day. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I think is a thing called meeting cadence, where we have short huddles in the morning, maybe a half an hour, 45 minute meeting at the end of the week with the senior managers and stuff. So you know, a lot of people, when things get busy, they stop having meetings because mm-hmm. they think it slows things down. Actually, keeping that cadence allows everyone to know what's going on, keep things moving, keeping things going at pace. If there's a problem, I could fix it now instead of having a problem on Tuesday and have a meeting Friday morning and going, ever since Tuesday, this stuff's been going terrible. So it's, it's keeping communication open and constantly checking in and, and understanding and, uh, what's the word I want, honoring due dates and actually getting stuff done on the right day. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, I'm just, because you're talking about meeting cadence, um, I think my team has a great cadence, but is there a rule of thumb on how often you should meet? We're doing it twice a week and it works for us. And I guess that might be the right answer, but is yeah. there a minimum and a maximum? It, most of this comes from meeting cadence is Vern Harnish in his book, okay. Scaling Up. Yep. Really, really good book. And uh, he talks about daily huddles, quick 15 minute huddle. Mm-hmm. The key with the huddle is it's not a, uh, this is what happened yesterday. It's a, this is what I'm doing today. And, and here's why I need help or here's what I expect or here's why it might be a bottleneck. So the huddle is always forward looking. Uh, then some sort of a quick weekly meeting, maybe during lunch or something to make sure that it's so 15 minutes every day maybe lunch once a week, once a quarter uh, is a half day, full half day devoted to strategy, what's going on in the company, making sure we're on thing. And then you've got your um, semi-annual and annual planning meetings, your strategic plan and six six months through the year, you should take a day to make sure you're still on plan and see if there's any adjustments. That sounds like a lot. I will tell you that the organizations that do those meetings effectively and do them quickly and stay on task, it totally changes the cadence. And they can, as I like to say, kill the monster while it's small. They can catch problems <laughs> before, before they become catastrophic problems. Kill the monster while it's small. I might have to use that as a quote from you, if that's okay. Um, I, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I also think um, that when you have that type of meeting cadence, you're driving home your culture and vision consistently and making the small adjustments killing the small monster or, you know, pivoting your navigation. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. Well, we talked about communication yeah. and how do you keep communication? You communicate Face- often. Yeah. If you're having a quick huddle, we're meeting weekly, we're meeting monthly. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be hard to have a major communication breakdown. Yeah. Very true. All right. Let's talk about principle of uh, disciplined execution. Um, in your book, you list nine steps of execution. What's the most um, often missed step or underdeveloped step in a small micro-sized company? 
uh, we talked about this earlier, I believe, mm-hmm. is binary goals. Um, mm-hmm. If if I don't know what my expectations are, they aren't clarified, I don't understand them, and I don't have a measurement on it to know whether I achieved it or not, it's very hard to execute effectively, but it's impossible to hold someone accountable if they don't understand what they're supposed to be doing. The other key thing about binary metrics is they take all emotion, politics, personality, all that out of it. You say we're going to close $3 million of business, you've closed 2.7, you're great, I love you, you're fantastic. However your performance isn't to what we agreed upon, mm-hmm. how do we execute against that? So it, it's have, being able to have a high level of accountability uh, and, key, and letting people know where they stand against those goals that creates a higher level of execution uh, through that accountability mm-hmm. culture, culture of accountability. Mm-hmm. In um, So having clarity on what, what someone's goal is and then the accountability to whether or not they met the goal um, and then adjusting and remedying the strategy of what they're using. How long do you allow that to go on when they're not meeting their goal? Um, it depends on the speed of your business. Mm-hmm. So if you've got something that's fast moving and you can't, I mean, a week it's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. You can't let them go a week or 10 days. I mean, it's got, you got to be, other companies move at a much slower pace. And if someone is missing their goal slightly, you've got a little bit more time to fix it. But um, let me give you an, a, um, a quick tool that I teach a lot that people say is very powerful. And I, I learned it when I, when I was, again, a young CEO, and I had employees that were not performing at the level they needed to be. They, their manager had talked to them, their manager's manager, and now they're with me. So they just didn't have a sense of urgency. So I'd say, come to my office and bring four pieces of paper. Sit down, say, all right, on piece of paper number one, what I want you to do is write down everything you're gonna to do to prove to me and everyone else here in the next 60 days that you should stay in the company. You obviously know that things are on shaky ground here. I'd prefer that you didn't leave the company, but we need to turn this around. So you tell me what you're gonna to do to show everyone you're gonna stay on the team. And I want it measurable and specific and observable so there's no guessing, mm-hmm. boom. Then we both sign it. It's not a legally binding contract, it's a, just a promise between two professionals, piece of paper number one. Piece of paper number two, what do you need to meet from me to make that happen? What support, training, resources help? You know, what do I have, what rules do I have to change? Whatever it is, again, we sort of negotiate that, we both sign it. Piece of paper number three is, if you turn this all around and you deliver everything you promised, what would you like as some sort of a small reward? You know, dinner out with your significant other, a little bit more flex time, a gift certificate, whatever it might be. Uh, we agree on that. Then piece of paper number four is, if I give you everything you asked for in piece of paper number two, and you do not achieve everything you promised on piece of paper number one, what should the ramifications be? And almost everybody says, you'll terminate me or I'll quit. Mm-hmm. So then you just have a meeting with them once a week. How are you doing on piece of paper number one? Do you need anything from me on piece of paper number two? Looks like you're gonna get piece of paper number three, or looks like uh, we're headed for piece of paper number four. Two things on that. Um, I've been the owner CEO of many companies. I've only had to terminate a very few number of people, but I've had a lot self-terminate. Mm-hmm. They get out at 50 days and they go achieve this. The other thing about having them write it is they can't come back and go, oh, it's not fair. I didn't know what the goal was, or I didn't understand it. Or, you know, it's not, I didn't think it was reasonable. No, you're the one that wrote the goal. You wrote the metric, you wrote the goal. It's in your handwriting, you signed it. Well, you didn't give me everything I needed. Yes, I did. We checked off everything. You got everything. I gave you everything you wanted. You didn't achieve what you want. You're the one that wrote the goal. That's usually at the point where they go, you're right. I'll go clean up my desk. I'm sorry. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty powerful, John. And I like. I have no idea where I learned that or if I made it up, but I'll just take credit. for <laughs> You it. totally should take credit for it. It was one of um, it was one of the uh, the points that you made in the book that I enjoyed the most. Of everyone can do that. Everyone can get out four pieces of paper and do this, right? Like it's an easy yeah. system. I just say that for anybody watching this, don't go back to your office. And go four for you, four for you, <laughs> four for you. <laughs> That's good advice too. <laughs> That's great. Um, so that piece of advice may apply to my next question, in the sense of um, you know, in coaching, um, in your coaching experience, um, in the execution steps, working with big businesses, um, are they more challenging than smaller organizations? Or are they dealing with a bigger um, issue of urgency? Again, it depends on the industry. Mm-hmm. Some move fast, some move slow. Uh, if you're technology, we got to fix it yesterday. Yeah, yeah. If you're making gearboxes, that's probably not going to change too much for the next year. Okay. Uh, so it's not the sense of urgency as much. Here's what I've learned. For the most part, big businesses and small businesses are almost exactly the same. It's just more zeros. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll admit in a large organization, it's more complex, more moving parts. When you get down to the fundamentals around leadership, the things we're talking about, it is no different at Microsoft as it is, and I, I, it's going to be stupid, I'm just about to do this, Mike's gar- Garage or something, right. Mike's Cake Company. It's exactly the same fundamentals, just not more zeros. Yeah. Um, I've found that small, in my opinion, what I've experienced, it's just as important, and they are just more zeros, but sometimes it's harder to get the urgency in a bigger business because of the layers that it has to go through. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. On to the next principle, extreme customer focus. Um, so, I mean, a lot of um, companies that I know, they just sent out that annual survey, you know, through SurveyMonkey to, you know, get this sense of whether or not their customers are happy. And some people rely on their customer happiness truly by their, like, Google reviews only, right? Um, yeah. For our listeners, what are um, what are some really cool extreme ways that you've seen people focus on customers? Well, I, how long do we have? <laughs> there's, um, there's surveys. There's, yeah, <laughs> about fifteen minutes. Yeah. Uh, there's surveys. There's social medias. Do you have a VIP users group? group? Okay. Do you have a new member mm-hmm. users group? Um, do you have, it comes and, you know, helps you advisors that helps you. And this is small companies, big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, are you doing your net promoter score? Do you have, you know, any way you can think of to get feedback from your customers, make sure you're not pummeling them. Like, um, this is a survey to find out how you like taking our survey this morning. We don't want to hit them quite that hard, yeah. but every way you can think of, um, to get as much feedback. Now I'm going to give you one piece of advice that I, I, I just gave to someone right before we got on the phone. One of the most important customer feedback you can get ever is to go to a group of your top customers, what I would call your target customers, the one you'd love to have more just like them, um, who are already doing business with you and ask them this question, why specifically did you hire us? Or why specifically do you do business with us? What are the top three or four four reasons? And go and ask uh, 5, 10, 20, 100, 500 of your best customers that, and what will happen is a pattern will emerge. And it will all say roughly the same two or three things. When you hear those two or three things, that's your brand. That's your brand. That's the areas to focus on. Put that on your business card. Put it on your, you know, your, your website. 
make sure you do those things superbly right. because I'm guessing if a bunch of your top clients are paying you for these same four things, most of the customers, or at least the customers you want, probably want the same three or four things. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most powerful voice of the customer tools there is, and almost nobody does it. Almost nobody. Um, that is guidance, I'd say, the one piece of guidance that people are most reticent about going to do, right? Like, oh, you know, they're like, oh, I don't know why people buy. What's our unique selling proposition? I don't know. I'm like, well, let's ask your customers. And they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> exactly the opposite of that. The more you know, the better right. you can do. They're the ones who pay all the bills. Why right. not check it with them and see what makes them happy? Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. All right, we're coming down to the end. Um, you point out in the book that most of the time customers will judge a business based on its frontline uh, people. So for retail companies and restaurants, what are your top tips for training your frontline staff to provide extreme customer focus? Okay, great question, there's a couple things here. Understand that there's a priority level of customer service. Mm -hmm. uh, rest or, or the service you deliver. In a restaurant, there's a certain level. You, you've got to have it super clean, great food, great service, uh, reasonable prices. So understand the major areas where you can't have a service failure. The stuff that's do or die, what I would call, many of us call the moments of truth. Yeah. For the moments of truth, that's where you get lots of training. That's where you have standard operating procedures. That's where you explain in great detail why it's so absolutely essential we do this this way every time. Again, uh, our my Starbucks um, example, the coffee has to be right. Give a massive, way more training that you think you need on those areas. Um, help them understand the importance of what they do. And let me see what else. That would be it at this point. I think that those is lots of training on the most important stuff. You know, easy to follow steps. I don't want to get them with 57 things you got to do three or four things that every time this happens, this is the absolutely perfect way to deliver the service that our customers expect. Uh, Shep Hyken is great at this. He's a, a customer service expert. Uh, here's the three points. When somebody makes a complaint, you say this, this, and this, and then you fix it. That's all they need to learn. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't remember. Um, were you the one who said that you stand in an audience and you say how many people you know, know the, the top VP, you know, CEOs. Okay, so that that's your example. Um, yeah. So, if could you share that example for our listeners? Um, because I think it really drives home how important our frontline people are. Perfect. I live in Florida, and the major grocery store chain here is called Publix. Mm -hmm. And there, and I always ask people in my audiences in Florida, if I'm someplace else, how many of you know the CEO of Publix? No hands go up. How many of you know the the family that owns Publix? No hands go up. How many of you know the state director for the state of Florida? How many, and, and all the way down, how many of you know the, the area manager that handles all the publics in your town? How many of you actually know the manager of the publics you go to every day? And maybe out of 100 people, like one or two hands will go up, and I go, but how many of you know the people at the checkout line that you see every day, the folks that bring the, every hand goes up? And I said, well then, here's interesting. If you met the people that own publics or CEO, they're amazing people, but that doesn't matter if the person at the cash register is rude. The relationship you have with the entire company, the entire company yeah. hinges on your relationship with the person who checks you out every day or takes your back. If they're rude or condescending or they don't do a good job or they patch it, you lose that customer forever. So it doesn't matter how everybody great is, it matters the relationship is with the person I talk to every day. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm still gonna ask the question anyways because I wanna know what your answer is, but because your frontline people have such a tremendous impact on how you're perceived as a brand, how do you keep often the lowest paid individuals in an organization the enthusiasm around that customer focus? Um, oh, the number one way is to get, to introduce, to put them together with customers that love them. Mm -hmm. To bring in a really happy customer and let them talk to your staff one morning. You know, if you have a huddle or, or letters, when, when customers send in letters or send in emails, Ritz-Carlton does a great job of this. Right. So every day they have lineup and they tell a story about a happy customer, how one of their employees went over the top with customer service. And then they read uh, what I think they, some companies call it the Eagle Club or whatever. Here's actual comments from our customers naming somebody in here that said you're doing a great job. So constantly connecting back to the actual impact they're having on the customers and the happy day. I mean, even in Publix or going grocery shopping, some of the folks there make your day. They're polite, they're helpful, they walk you to where you don't know. And every now and then, you know, bring somebody in that goes, I shop here every day and I love you people. You're awesome. Everybody always treats me great. I love this place. Uh, and every company, I, I would hope every company has clients like that or customers that are super happy and would be more than willing to come in and talk to their staff. Yeah. All right. Coaching clients, you all have to get your customers to come in and, and love on your staff. That's a great, that's a great emphasis. I love that. Okay. John, it's been 10 years since you wrote Awesomely Simple. And um, I would imagine, I feel like it's... Um, it's something, a structure that would last forever. If you were to do a rework or an addition to the book, what what's missing from it? What would you add if you were to do a rewrite? Well, I've, I've reboiled that down to four points, which is talent, culture, extreme customer focus, disciplined execution. If I were to look at it and say what I left out, I think change would probably be mm. something I'd add in. Because, you know, change is, is um, increasing in speed. There was a lot of change 10 years ago. There's a massive amount of change right. now and it's only going to get faster. I, um, when I was teaching at NASA, we were, they were talking about how to attract top talent. And I said, you have to understand expectations have changed. Do you use Amazon? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't? Do you love Amazon? Of course I love Amazon. They're awesome. Yeah. And why? Because they have everything I need and they deliver really fast. Yeah. One click, boom, yeah. it's there. Uh, the next day, sometimes the same day, and by the way, the way they do that now is they, they look at an area where they have lots of customers, mm -hmm. a town or city, they use an algorithm to anticipate what those people will need, then they stock a warehouse full of the stuff they think they will need, mm -hmm. that way when you click on it and buy it based on the algorithm, they can take it and ship it to you that day. So I went through and used a bunch of examples, but if you look at Amazon, the expectations they have, they've created for customers. That means every single business, everyone listening to this, you compete with Amazon. Hundred percent convenience, yeah. the price, yeah. the the uh, options. Everybody now will hold you in in relevance or uh, relative to their best customer experience. Yeah. If you go to a Ritz Carlton and stay there, your expectations at a lesser hotel are going to be. A dashed because your expectation is, well, how come there wasn't chocolate on my pillow or whatever? Right. The other thing too is your employees have the same expectations. Why can't I just one-click this? Why do I have to go through all these channels? Can't I just talk to the CEO? Heck, on LinkedIn, I can talk to anybody I want to in the world. Mm -hmm. So the big thing I would I would be talking about is you got it, and, and there's a new there's we talk about it in Leader of the Future. You've got IQ, your competence level, got to be good at that. EQ, your emotional quotient 
got to be able to make genuine connections with other people. But the new one is AQ, which is your adaptability or agility quotient. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that I would focus on even more now, because I believe that's the quotient that if companies and people are highly agile and adaptable, they will not survive it as we go into the future. Yeah. I look forward to reading that part of your future edition. That would be great. <laughs> um, John, um, we're coming to the end of our time together and I just wanna personally thank you so much for um, sharing so genuinely and authentically today. Um, I am a huge fan of your book, so anyone listening, um, you need to go to Amazon, get it same day. <laughs> <laughs> um, put it right in your one-click uh, shopping cart and get it delivered today. I'll just be at your front door and sign it for you and hand it to you personally. <laughs> that is fantastic. Do you have any future books coming out that you know and want to share here today? No, actually, you're wonderful. I am rewriting. I'm doing an update on Awesome Simple. And it's it's going to be a different title, but I'm boiling down and adding in all those new things. because. It's funny, part of it is I look back, that book's 10 years old, mm -hmm. and I, I hadn't read it at about eight. <laughs> I opened it and went, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it was gonna be. You know, I, these were pretty close, you know? Yeah. I thought, you know, 10 years ago, I knew I didn't know as much as I know now, uh, but now we're gonna update and add some new things and, and clean it up a little bit, so that's the one. But, you know, if, if you like reading, if you go to my website, johnspence.com, there's a, a link there where you can go and get my reading list, and I have the top, uh, 150 business books I've ever read on that list. Outstanding. Well, we're here together today because you're on my website in my top 40 best company, uh, business books to thank read. You. So thank you. You're thank welcome. You, thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> what is the best way for our listeners to find you online? Is Where would you like them to go to subscribe or whatnot? My website is johnspence.com. Okay. And if anybody wants help or advice or suggestions, you know, just you want to bounce an idea, if you need some help, um, just send me an email at john at johnspence.com. I'm always happy to help in any way I'm able. And as I like to say, if I don't have the answer, I can find someone who does. So don't hesitate to send me a note if you want some advice or feedback. Excellent. John, again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.